What's up, everybody? Are you tuning in to the Challenge USA on CBS? Well, tune in to me, Tyson Apostle, as I break down each and every episode with my co-host, Amelia Wedemeyer. I'm also a contestant on the show, which gives you all the insider scoop. Amelia, how stoked are you to do this? Tyson, I'm freaking excited. I cannot wait to sit my butt down every single week to watch the show, then come here and recap it with you on the Ringer Reality TV podcast. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. We are back. It is Monday, July 11th. The saga of Harvey Weinstein is probably the defining story in entertainment for the past 20 years. His exposure in 2017 as a serial rapist and his ultimate trial in 2020 on rape charges in New York absolutely upended the entertainment business. It has not been the same since he was exposed Everything from the culture and how people act on film sets to the accountability that has swept through the business, exposing other predators and men that have behaved badly in the business. Ken Aletta, who has been a New Yorker writer for decades, wrote a new book about Harvey Weinstein. And it's a fascinating account of his entire life, going from earliest days through college and getting power and his relationship with women over the years, all the way up to... Ken emailing Harvey in prison. And we're going to get into it today with Ken on the subject of one of the most infamous monsters in Hollywood history, Harvey Weinstein. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Ken Aletta. Ken is a New Yorker writer and the author of the new book, Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. Let's get into this because... I've been waiting for this book for years. I remember when you were sitting diligently in the Harvey Weinstein criminal trial every day. You were not writing anything. You were just watching and taking notes. And I said, all right, this book on Harvey is going to be good. And I read it. It is great. Um, it's very different from the other books that have been written about the exposure of Harvey Weinstein as a serial rapist. And we'll get into that a little bit, but I'm interested in why you took on this subject. Because for listeners that don't know, I was the editor of The Hollywood Reporter when the Harvey Weinstein story broke. And we had actually tried to do that story ourselves. We, at one point, we had a big whiteboard in, a news, in the newsroom with the name of every woman who had ever worked for the Weinstein companies or made a lot of movies with them. We tried to get people to go on the record. They wouldn't go on the record. You know, Ken, you did a very famous profile of Harvey Weinstein for The New Yorker that exposed a lot of his abusive behavior, but didn't go into some of the sexual depravity for reasons that you describe in the book. And I know when the initial New York Times story broke, among the emotions that I felt someone in this world was guilt and remorse for not having been able to expose this behavior earlier. You know, Harvey was right there walking among us. And those of us in the media that covers this world didn't get him, so to speak. 
Did, did you decide to do this book in part because you also weren't able to expose him in a way that you clearly wanted to at the time? Yeah, I, I yes, uh, the answer to that is, of course. Um, but, you know, I, guilt is not the overwhelming emotion I felt. Um, I In 2002, when I profiled him in The New Yorker and I confronted him about rumors I've been hearing, and I named two women who supposedly he had abused at the 1998 Venice Film Festival, um, the woman wouldn't talk to me. And, and he denied it, saying he had extracurricular, affair, extracurricular affairs. He was, not, uh, he was not a good husband, but he was not a rapist. I, if you couldn't get the woman to talk, how do you publish it? The same problem you had at Hollywood Reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went when in October of, of 2017, when the Times stories came out and then Ronan Farrow's stories came out, my overwhelming emotion was not guilt. It was pleasure. It was just applause. I mean, right. they finally cracked the case. And, and they finally were able to get women, by doing them in unison in a group, to come forward and admit. And we couldn't publish in 2002 because we couldn't get the woman to admit. So otherwise, if we published it that way, and I had no guilt about not publishing it that way, we would have been like the National Enquirer. You know, it was all hearsay, all rumor. And in fact, in the book, you discuss about how you actually, if you had published at the time, you would have had it a little wrong because one of the instances was not rape. It was attempted rape and she had kind of gotten out of it. Right. Rowena too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's why this book is so fascinating because it's the opposite what we have read so far. Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow is fantastic. And she said by the New York Times reporters, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, those are essentially hunt stories right? They, they are detectives, so to speak, trying to figure out how to expose this person. And it goes into all of the, the difficulties and how to expose it. And it's really, if you, if you ever want to be an investigative journalist, it is a must, both those books are must reads. But your book is the opposite. Your book is told from the inside and how Harvey Weinstein and the others in his orbit were experiencing this hunt and how they reacted and some of the desperation moves and all of the other things that were going on on the inside. Um, is that how you viewed the book? Yes. I, I actually wanted, I'm writing a biography, uh, mm-hmm. which automatically is different than the brilliant two books you mentioned. Um, I'm trying to get inside Harvey's head and trying to make the reader understand uh, what this fiend was doing to, to plug the holes in the dam and protect himself, which he had done successfully for four decades. And, and, and the panic he went through and, and, and take a look at, at, you know, what his talent was and also take a look at what he was not the brilliant businessman that, that he was portrayed to be. So by, by charting his entire life from childhood, I was trying to do several things. I was trying to get inside his head and explain how he responded to events. But I was also trying to get inside his head and explain to the reader what made Harvey the monster he became. He was not a monster growing up. Uh, he was a bit of a nerd, if if anything. And in fact, uh, in my search suggested that the first time he actually raped a woman was not until after he dropped out of the University of Buffalo. Uh, in the early 70s and, and raped one of his interns. 
and Hope Do More. And so Harvey did not actually become a sex fiend until after he had power. That's fascinating. But by quoting Harvey and by trying to get into his head here, did you worry a little that you might be giving too much credence to this person who has, uh, by all accounts, become a monster in the culture at large? No, because I was not reliant on his testimony. Right. In the book, you go, you say, Harvey says this, but others say this, and the documents say this. Yeah, but my I, my interviews with Harvey consisted of two things. The 12 hours of taped interviews I did with him for my 2002 profile in The New Yorker, which I saved, and I used them particularly for events that happened prior to 2002. And after that, the only exposure I had to Harvey, who really was very unhappy with my profile and unhappy with me, he agreed to answer some email questions from prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but those were relatively minor things. An explanation of his behavior and his motivation doesn't come from him. It comes from others and from my own sense of you know conclusions that I, I drew from the evidence. It must have been a fascinating journalistic exercise to go back and review those hours of tapes from your initial interviews in 2002, knowing what we know now. Well, it was interesting. I mean, among the things that that became a pattern, when I was profiling him in 02, every time he did something wrong and I, I, I asked him about it, you know, abusing someone um, verbally, et cetera. He said, I know I've learned and I'll I'll reform and I'll change. But that's in 2002, he was saying that to me. But if you look at his career since, he repeats that over and over again. He's constantly apologizing, saying he'll reform, but he couldn't reform. He was who he was. And one of the things that that really resonated with me was this this image of himself that he had as a victim and an outsider. And I saw that, I mean, over the years, you know, obviously I wasn't asking him about sexual issues, but even in the business context, when we were reporting about his company and uh, their desperate effort to sell their TV division and, you know, some of the more, uh, you know, he would get out there and make a speech that was patently false and everybody knew it was false but we were trying to report around him and he would call and scream and say, you know, why are you coming after me? Why, you know, I'm just a, a, a small time businessman. Look at these big studios that are trying to crunch me and leak stories to you to destroy me. It was always Harvey as the victim. And that really comes through in the book. No, he, and, and even in the trial, when, when he agreed to, he asked to speak before the judge sentenced him in his criminal trial in New York. And in the speech, he got up and he, and he played the victim again. He said, right. I didn't have the power that these people pretend that I have. Miramax was just a small company. The Weinstein Company was just a small company. But in fact, he had enormous power and he abused it. And, and the jury found him guilty of that. And the judge sentenced him to 23 years. It's a long sentence. Right. And the appeal. A lot of people thought it would be overturned. Well, I, I watched that on Zoom. I watched the appeal and five female justices on the appellate court asked really tough questions, but not of Harvey's defense lawyers, but of the prosecution lawyers. Mm. And I thought, my God, they might overturn this, claiming that the judge behaved improperly and made some wrong decisions. But they unanimously ruled that he was guilty, A, 
B, he now faces a trial in October in L.A., which arguably is a stronger case against him than the case in New York was. Right. And and I think given what we saw in both Bill Cosby trials, the decision by the judge to allow the uh, prior bad acts witnesses, essentially allowing other women to come forward and talk to the jury about the pattern of behavior, that right. seems to be the most effective strategy in getting juries to convict these Me Too offenders. Do you agree? Yes and no. I, I mean, the, they call them Molinar witnesses. And, mm. and, and the appeal that Harvey made was based on the fact that Molinar witnesses should not be allowed because they were not part of the indictment. But I would argue that the most powerful thing on, uh, to, to convict Harvey was the prosecution in New York had to convince the jury that the women who were abused by Harvey yet nevertheless kept in touch with him, and in some cases continued to have sexual relationships with him, that somehow that was explainable, that was kind of normal. And, and they brought on a witness, uh, Dr. Barbara Zib, who made the case that, that in rape cases, 40% of the people who are raped keep in touch with the person who raped them afterwards. And they do that for various reasons. The denial, they're afraid, they don't want to, they've signed an NDA and they don't want to risk losing that money. They don't want to be sued in a court. They say no one will believe them. All sorts of reasons women have to continue. So the prosecution in New York very successfully overcame that obstacle and convinced the jury that, in fact, it was more normal for women to keep in touch after Harvey had raped them. Especially in this business. I mean, think about that. The power that he wielded over careers and the careers that he destroyed and the, the you know, for lack of a better word, shit-talking he would do about actresses who turned him down. And that had real repercussions for them in the industry, as we saw people coming forward and saying that. Harvey was, you know, it, it's almost like out of Robert Caro's Lyndon Johnson biographies. I mean, it's really a portrait of power and how he used it and abused it. And, and Harvey knew he had power and power to put people in his movies, the power to keep them from doing other movies for other people. Yeah, you use this term architecture of collusion in the book, which I think is a perfect way to describe the way that Hollywood operates. From the very beginning, it was constructed in some ways to protect and in some ways justify this kind of behavior. And Harvey was nothing if not a student of Hollywood. So you could say that this was almost, you know, the outgrowth of a hundred years of this kind of behavior in the business. This was sort of the worst possible manifestation of that culture. There's no question that the, the so-called casting couch culture of Hollywood, which goes back a hundred years, uh, is Harvey's an extension of that. I would argue, uh, before making a larger point, that, that Harvey is different than the casting couch culture because he raped people. And most people in, in earlier incarnations of sexual abuse did not rape people. Harvey was an extreme example of that. But nevertheless, the larger point you're leading to, and I agree with it, is that collusion. People in Hollywood knew or should have known. People who worked for Harvey knew or should have known that he was sexually abusing women and they kept their mouths quiet and they kept their mouths quiet for lots of reasons 
I mean, some of it was conformity, some of it was fear, some of it was lack of character, some of it was just a business decision they made that they didn't want to impair their own careers. Uh, and Harvey got away with it for four decades. Yeah, that actually, a lot of the book is about that, about who knew what and when and who should have known and who had documents in front of them that showed what was going on. And I think that is fascinating in a way because you're, you're exposing the enablers. As an insider, I know a lot of these people. You're like, oof, I wince when I read a lot of that stuff. Well, also, you know, you, you think about the, these people who, who knew or should have known. I, I tell a story about a, a woman who came to work was hired by Harvey. She left an agent position on the West Coast to come to work in Miramax. And and she comes in, and the day before she's to start, four co-workers, who are going to be her co-workers, ask her to have a drink. And they over drinks, they say to her, Hillary, don't come to work here. And she said, why? She said, because you're an attractive woman. Harvey will abuse you, sexually abuse you. He will assault you. Don't come to work here. And she didn't. But these are four people. One worked in HR. One was a Harvey assistant. Two were executives in the company. They knew. Now, if they knew, how many other people who worked for Harvey knew? Right. Well, that gets to the Bob question. And this is perhaps the most interesting relationship in the book. And I was reading this keenly because I actually did that first interview with Bob right after Harvey was exposed and it was, I mean, he was crying. He was, you know, clearly emotional and um, kind of in shock still, it seemed. And everyone asked me after the fact, after the interview, whether I believed him when he said he didn't know the extent of Harvey's behavior. That was the big question. And at the time, I remember saying that I believe he believed that, but that the the evidence that was coming out at the time was so overwhelming that he almost certainly should have known if he didn't know explicitly. And now, in your book, you reveal even further evidence that he either did know or he 100% should have. Can you explain that a little? Bob claims he didn't know, and I have no reason to challenge him that he that he didn't know. But clearly, he should have known. I mean, if you go back to Harvey and Bob, in 1998, when Rowena Chu and Zelda Perkins challenged Harvey, the first time he was ever challenged, by the way, for sexual misbehavior, and they later signed an NDA, so they kept their mouth shut and they didn't say anything. And Zelda later was the first person to break an NDA. But Harvey had to pay them almost $500,000 to silence them. And that, and so I, I couldn't get the woman to talk, but as I'm doing the piece for The New Yorker, I'm saying, if I could find out that the parent company, Disney, paid the almost $500,000, or Miramax, the company that Harvey ran, paid, then I can get the story without the woman's testimony. And so Harvey, fearful that I was writing about his sexual misbehavior, uh, asked for a summit meeting with me and David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. And we had this meeting, which I recount in the in the book. And I say, Harvey, I need to see the canceled checks for how this 500, almost $500,000 was paid. And he protested. I said, I need to see it tomorrow, Harvey, because this is a Tuesday. 
Tomorrow is Wednesday, Thursday, the deadline, we close, we close the piece. The next day, he came back to the same meeting room at the Condé Nast with his brother, Bob. And they slid across the table to cancel checks from Bob, personal checks. And I asked Bob, why did you pay the money to silence these, these women? And he said, because Harvey came to me and said, these women were blackmailing him. And they would ruin my marriage and, and my three young girls. And, and I believed him, Bob said, and therefore I, I paid the money. And do I have evidence that Bob knew? No. Do I think he should have known and been more aggressive with his brother? Yes. Do I have evidence that, in fact, he believed his brother was a sex addict and, and confronted him on that? Yes. Do I know that Bob actually fired Harvey in 2017? Yes. Only after... Harvey tried to go around him and get Bob ousted from the company. Isn't that amazing story? I, I have the tape of that, that June 2nd, 2015 uh, conference call with members of the board and Harvey, where Harvey literally is screaming at them, get rid of my brother, Bob. You've got to fire him. He, he's causing all this problem. He's responsible for the losses we we face. And actually, he wasn't. But Harvey was responsible for those losses. But never, it's one of the most extraordinary things I've ever heard. And I can't believe I have the tape of it. It's great. It, it really is a it's it's an operatic relationship that they had because they were constantly fighting and throwing things at each other. And there's the scene in your book where Harvey punches him in the nose and he's bleeding all over the office. And it, I mean, it's just the, the most dysfunctional. But when push come to, came to shove, in most situations, Bob would fall in line and back Harvey. And do you think that this was some kind of deep family issue? Or do you think that Bob just knew that his own self-interests were typically wrapped up in Harvey? Bob is two years younger than Harvey. As a kid, he was called Bobby. He was always in the shadow of, of Big Harvey, Big Brother, who dominated. And I think that that was a pattern that existed throughout life. Now, nevertheless, Bob created Dimension and made movies and actually made more money than, than Harvey did with his scary movie and some of those others. Um, but nevertheless, he, he always lived in the shadow of his Big Brother, A. And B, I think it was like, it was like a marriage, you know, you, you some days you think you want a divorce and, and some days he thought he wanted a divorce from Harvey. But in the end, he, he was subjected to being a vassal. The scramble around Hollywood in the aftermath of the revelations was pretty epic. I mean, everybody, people who knew him so closely and were intimately involved in his business, all of a sudden it was like, Harvey who? You know, what? I don't, I didn't, you know, yeah, of course I worked there, but like I didn't deal with him. I mean, it was almost comical how people just kind of ran for the hills. And even today, like it, people kind of know that the book is coming out and that I, that a lot of people in the media have copies of it. And I've been getting texts from people around town like, hey, am I, am I in the, am I in the Ken Aletta book? Things like that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's still, to this day, the stink of Harvey Weinstein is is pretty prevalent throughout the business. And I will say, reading the, reading the book, there are things of people I know that dealt with him that you get to their real role in all of this. I mean, Ken Sunshine is a perfect example, the publicist. I didn't right. know that Ken Sunshine was so active 
in sliming the Italian model when she first made her accusations and that he was, you know, the guy that Harvey kind of leaned on to, uh, to, you know, run the negative, the, the negative information campaign, you know, all of that kind of stuff. No, a lot of people like Ken Sunshine and, and who interestingly, who I know for years and refused to do an interview with me. And right. I mean, he said he would, but then ducked my phone calls and emails. Because he knows it's, it doesn't look great. I mean, it's awful what he did. I look forward to the time when I run to him on the street and, and he'll say, you unfair to me. And I'll say, oh, up yours, buddy. Yeah. You knew my phone number. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, how close do you think that the Weinstein Company got to bankruptcy before it was saved by Inglorious Bastards? Well, it got close to it then, but it got, it got, at the end, it, it, it could not avoid bankruptcy. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. Back in the day, before it all fell apart. And Glorious Bastards was real important, as was the crying game. And, and you know, before he sold to Disney in 93, mm-hmm. the, the Miramax was in real trouble. And, and the crying game actually was a great success, but not only a great success in terms of, of business, but also a success in recruiting two bidders to bid for the Weinstein, for the Miramax. Mm-hmm. One was Disney, which succeeded, and the other was Ted Turner, right. who bid against Disney and lost. It's so crazy to think that Disney owned Miramax for so many years. I mean, it, it just would never happen today in this day and age. Um, well, you know, you, know you, talk about, you talk about Bob being, you know, in, in an uncomfortable marriage. Think about Michael Eisner and Disney and how uncomfortable that marriage was. And Eisner couldn't stand Harvey. Nor could Peter Murphy, his his chief strategist, and they wanted to get rid of him. But they and they were they wanted to attack him, but they kept their mouths shut because they knew that Harvey had the had the press on his side, and he had the culture. I mean, at that time in the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, Miramax was independent film, and Harvey was sort of uh, the may, as you say in the book, the mayor of Hollywood. And by the way, and also someone who was making. And, and and distributing really good movies. Right. And and had real talent, which they knew he had. One of the reasons why people, including Bob, didn't want to oust Harvey and his board didn't want to oust him at various points, and Eisen didn't want to oust him. There was a worry all through those years that if there is no Harvey, is there a company? Right. Is he so valuable that we need him as bad as he is? And he can go off and lose $55 million on Talk Magazine. <laughs> How much do you think Disney knew about Harvey's personal behavior? I pressed them on that, and and they they say they knew nothing about it. And in fact, a senior Disney executive, after my book came out, told me that he w- had them go through. Just is there something we missed here? And he came back at me and said, "We missed nothing. We didn't know." Is that true? I'm telling you what they say. I can't prove them. Mm-hmm. That's telling the truth. But I can say or assert that they should have known. And a lot of people should have known. Right. It was so blatant what he was doing. Yeah, it, it, that's the thing is in retrospect, it was so obvious. I mean, you know, the, people were joking about it on stage at the Oscars. That's right. <laughs> um, last question here. Back in the late 90s with the Zelda Perkins and Rowena Chu accusations, Harvey made a statement that I think is fascinating. And you noted in the book as kind of the first time when he admits to improper behavior. He says, 
and this is a quote, I sometimes don't know when it's consensual. Do you believe that he believes this? Oh, I, you're really asking an incredibly important and mysterious question here. Um, what's in Harvey's mind? I mean, I can't climb into his mind, and I don't want to play, you know, psychobabble uh, on a question like that. It is very possible. There are a couple of explanations. One is very possible that Harvey thought it was a fair trade. The woman wanted something from me, and I wanted something from them. Them. It was just a transaction. He could believe that. It is also possible he's in total denial that this never happened. It is also possible, which I actually do think is true, that he's a sociopath. And if you look at the definition of a sociopath, there are three key ingredients. One is lack of guilt. I don't think Harvey had any guilt. Two is lack of empathy. Harvey had no empathy for the woman he was dealing with. He couldn't relate to them. And the third is you're a narcissist. And Harvey clearly was a narcissist. Those, now, you can have those three ingredients and not be a sociopath. But a soci- if you have those three ingredients and you abuse more than 100 women, ipso facto, I think you are a sociopath. Harvey's 70 years old. Do you believe that he will spend the rest of his life in prison? I believe that. And, and as his lawyers, in, in fact, one of them, his lead lawyer in the New York trial said, before the judge sentenced him. I don't believe Harvey would live out a long sentence. He's in terrible physical shape. He's in a wheelchair. He has stenosis, which is why he's in a wheelchair. He takes shots in his eyes from immaculate degeneration. He has high cholesterol, a stent in his heart. He has severe diabetes. I mean, he takes 20 pills a day. Harvey is a physical wreck. And if you look at him, I mean, I always sat in the fourth row on the on the aisle seat so I could always have a clear line at Harvey all throughout the trial. He's in miserable shape. He would fall asleep in the trial. If you look at him, his face is all, you know, scarred and, and lined and, and straggly beard and collars rolled up. I mean, he's not the Hollywood Harvey. Hmm. Then it really is Hollywood ending, as your book calls it. All right, I want to thank... Ken Aletta, this was a fascinating conversation. Your new book, Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence is available. What day is it available? The 12th of July. 12th of July. Urge everyone to read it. Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. My daily prediction. Craig, did you see those Thor, Love and Thunder numbers? You barely edged me out. I did. I took the under on 150 million for domestic opening this past weekend. The final number was 143. Craig took the over. So I we have to create a belt. We have to have a a, a a town podcast belt that we pass between each other on who gets their predictions right and wrong. You've been pretty good. I feel like you're hitting on like 70% lately, which is strong. Yeah, the box office stuff I'm really comfortable on. So I I, I have a good sense of that stuff. Some of the others have not been as strong. But that brings me to today's prediction. The Emmy nominations are coming out tomorrow. I know the Emmys have kind of struggled for relevance in recent years, but in Hollywood, they're still a big deal. And there's a lot, there's a pecking order. The network's all jockey to have the most nominations. It seems to be going back and forth between Netflix and HBO over the past few years. And the number of shows that can be nominated in the three marquee categories, 
best drama series, best comedy series, and best limited series. They've increased the number of nominees, so a lot more shows are getting Emmy love the past few years. I think tomorrow is going to be a big day for Hulu. I think they're going to break through with Only Murders in the Building in comedy series. I think that'll actually, if my prediction is correct, they will get the most nominations for that show just because, yeah, I mean, because they stocked it. They not only does it have Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez, who I think will all be nominated, but they stocked it with guest stars that will also get nominations. Like they put Tina Fey in an episode. They put Nathan Lane in an episode. They, I think all those people get nominated and ultimately that will get the most nominations. But in the drama category, I think that uh, Squid Game will get a ton of nominations from Netflix. I would see, I could see Apple breaking through with Severance, the Ben Stiller directed project with Adam Scott that a lot of people are talking about. And then they've got the final season of Ozark, which I think will get a ton of nominations as well. So you're taking Hulu though as the, kind of the biggest come from behind winner. I feel like people don't put Hulu in that HBO conversation. They haven't, but they've got three really strong contenders with Only Murders and with Dope Sick in the limited series, and especially with Dropout. I could I could see her winning, Seyfried. I think she will win. I think that performance is so amazing. And if you look at the people that she's likely up against in that category, I look at my buddy Scott Feinberg's projections over at THR.com. He's, um, he's got Jessica Chastain in something called Scenes from a Marriage that I don't think a lot of people... Watched. Oh, yeah, the Oscar Isaac thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He thinks they'll both Pass. be nominated. <laughs> I know, it's depressing central. But uh, Julia Garner in that Inventing Anna miniseries, oh, where yeah, she yeah. Was, her voice was super annoying. He thinks that Lily James and Pam and Tommy and Margaret Qualley in Made, which was good on Netflix. And then he has Julia Roberts, my favorite, in Gaslit, which was a Stars limited series about Watergate. Um, I, I don't think any of them are going to be a real competitor to Amanda Seyfried. We'll see. I th- I'd love to see Anne Hathaway get nominated for We Crashed. I thought she was amazing <laughs> as uh, Adam Newman's wife. <laughs> yeah, this was a great year for impersonating crazy people. The big mystery is winning time, whether the Emmy voters will give that a lot of noms. And I hope they do. I thought winning time ended up being a great show. And it's a lot of fresh faces. The guy who plays Magic Johnson is amazing. I hope he gets nominated. He is. Yeah. So we'll see if they do. But my prediction, Hulu is the big story out of the Emmys. All right, we'll be back with a show tomorrow, actually, right after the Emmy noms are announced, and we'll do a little breakdown. I want to thank Ken Aletta for coming on today. I want to thank producer Greg Korlbeck, and I want to thank you. See you tomorrow. 